0: Listener Production.
1: You are listening to episode 139 of the Howie Games Part B, featuring triple paralympic gold medalist Curtis McGrath. Don't forget to get your hands on Curtis's new book, Blood, Sweat, and Steel. You can pre-order it right now through Booktopia. Onwards. So I guess the obvious question and it's it's a it's a difficult one to ask, like what happened, to be honest, mate? What happened?
2: Um so we were out in the wilderness. We're in a very far, far corner of the Uruzgan Province, probably about a thirty-five minute flight, thirty-minute flight on a helicopter from Tarincount. So it took us three, three days, three days to get out there by land um, over the roads um, to a place called Patrol Base Anaconda in the Kazurusgun area, um, which is right, right in the top northeastern corner of Urasgan. and. We were tasked to go on a, a three-week uh, sort of clearance operation of this valley to, to help the special American Special Forces that were operating in the area to, to push out the insurgents. Um, American Special Forces, um, these guys are Green Berets, and anyone who's seen the yep. movie um, 12 Strong with uh, yes. Chris Hemsworth, they're the American Green Berets. So they've obviously been in Afghanistan since like September what would it be, September 15th or something like that, 2001. So 2001, they've got very yeah. good operation experience. These guys obviously wouldn't have been, <laughs> been those, well, they might have been, but um, the guys that were there then, but um, they are incredibly good at waging war and, and, and sort of going after people, um, and, and that's that's their predominantly role. Like, similar to the, the Australian SAS, you know, they're, they're going after insurgents, For intelligence purposes, to you know get threats and and you know neutralize you know potential IED facilitators and all that, Um, and they had been having quite a a problem with the insurgents in the area. They'd kicked up a bit of stink and um, they had pushed out the Afghan uh, army and and police off certain areas of interest. And we were to come in and help reestablish these these checkpoints and patrol bases and all that sort of stuff. So we um, were then tasked to go out um, to a a, a particular uh, police checkpoint that had been pushed, uh, the police had been pushed off the the checkpoint and was in a strategically sort of important location that had three valleys intersecting each other and those other valleys went off into other provinces so the insurgents could come in from other provinces and then into Erdogan, which we wanted to obviously stop. So when we had the um, task, we were not given too much information about what had happened um, and where the the places of interest would be for IEDs, specifically for the IEDs. We were told that on this grid point, um, there's a checkpoint that the police have been pushed out. And you'll know when you're there and you're like, okay, cool, what else? Like, oh, you know, there's a heap IDs up there, but we don't know where they are. You know, so, well, you know, what type, you know, who made them, you know, all that sort of stuff that you want to know as a, as a person who's looking for them. So you can create mm-hmm. that threat picture and that, that those patterns and, and all that sort of stuff. And we weren't given much information at all. Um, so, we had to just, you know, get on with the job. We had a task to do, and, and it was going to be a five day mission, and we we're going to go up there for five days and try and establish this checkpoint. Mm-hmm. And um, we got, I don't know, maybe one k away from the checkpoint. No, probably not even that. Yeah, maybe a k. And we came across like just vehicle wreckage, blast craters, just shit everywhere. And like along a road and there was no locals around whatsoever, which is always a sign that there's something in the area that, that is bad. Um, and we're like, shit, like we need, to, we need to up our ante here. Like We hadn't actually come across an IED area that could really, really, really have potential IEDs um, mm-hmm. yet on our deployment, three months in. And you know, we found a lot of stuff in the ground that were caches, but no IEDs. So we sort of set out in our, our search pattern. We just got a little bit more thorough. We slowed right down because of the threat increase. And then we, um, one of the boys found the first IED. And like I said before, you know, we did all those processes, marked it out, photographed, got back, and then called up the bomb disposal guys. They came out, did their thing, uh, blew it up, and we moved on. But that took, shit, that would have taken like three and a half hours, four hours, just for that process, just the one IED. Because they were the only bomb disposal unit or team in the Kazuruzgan area, and there was like five other or three other operations happening at the same time, they needed to go back to the patrol base Anaconda to be the, the quick reaction force, or the QRF, mm-hmm. to be the asset that can be utilised elsewhere. Uh, but unbeknownst to us and them uh, or anyone, we were going into a more dangerous area than anyone else in that whole province. So we sort of moved in. And we started to find more IEDs. So we then called up the QRF and took another three hours. So by time, you know, that's six and a half hours, seven hours worth of work Um, just to move. I think it was probably, we moved probably like, maybe about eight, yeah, maybe about 700 metres. So that's how long it took. Yeah, so just the process and the the, the strain looking down, you know, every little piece of rubbish could be an IED because we'd found one. like, shit, this is starting to get really real. Um and we, we stayed out that night away from the checkpoint where well, we could see it. Um and then that night, like the engineers, the patrol commander was was really good. He was a, a Lieutenant Harris, his name was Tony Harris. He recognized that the engineers were working pretty hard and were really fatigued. So he allowed us to sleep all night. Usually you have to do guard duty at some point. And the the infantry guys that were sitting in the vehicle, you know, sipping Gatorade and sucking air con. Um Hmm. were uh, were tasked with the the night duty so which was great because it meant that we could you know get on with the task the next day um fully refreshed which was really good command and control you know, a lot of uh a lot of guys and commanders especially don't don't necessarily do that. they just see it as like a fair thing that everyone does their duty at night and does does oh, their yeah. duty but you know, in, in essence the engineers are working 24/7 then it's, it's just not fair so um yeah Lieutenant Harris is great um Was the second day we we sort of started to move up towards the the checkpoint on the main road, and we realized we found another IED. But at the time when we found it, the EOD guys, the bomb disposals, they were away doing another task, so that took ages for them to come out, like five hours or something like that. Um, And I'm not not blaming them. It's just just the circumstances of of the the dangers of the area. And um, on the third day we moved up. And uh, we realised that the vehicles wouldn't be able to get past this huge boulder that was blocking the main road that the insurgents had pushed onto the road, Um, especially that the Humvees that the Afghanis were using because uh, they're much wider than our Bushmasters, even though the Bushmaster's like 15 ton. It's a massive vehicle, but it still fits on a normal road, which is smart. Um, And then um, so we found another way around. We got the vehicles up on there. And um, that was pretty much day, end of day three. We finally got on top of this checkpoint. We just saw, like, there was just rubbish everywhere. They pushed all over the, the sandbags, HESCO baskets, which are these big, like, square box-looking things full of dirt. Uh, they're, they're, like, bomb and bulletproof and rocket-proof and stuff like that. Very simple but very effective. They cut all the bottoms out of them. All the dirt had flowed out. Um, yeah, just made a mess of it Put barbed wire across the road and stuff like that, things that – our metodetect- they knew our detectors weren't going to enjoy them, but, you know, we were able to pull all the barbed wire off and not worry about it. Um, and then on the fourth day, we got given approval to explosively remove that large boulder on the, the road because there was no other We couldn't pull it off with, you know, even our vehicles weren't strong enough.
1: Well, so blow it up.
2: Yeah, just maybe like just shatter it. We're just going okay. to put some explosives on it, shatter it, and then we can just push it down the hill uh, or off to the side of the road. It was on a very steep sort of road, so you couldn't get around it. Um, yeah, so we just break it up and then we can just throw it, throw it to the side so the vehicles could get through because the Afghans were going to use that that road every time. So, um, and then, so I, I can't quite remember why, why but I, why I was the one they were waiting on but I went to the wrong due to the fatigue we we're working you know quite uh, long hours probably you know 13 hours a day it's like 40 degrees uh, we're working at two and a half thousand meters three thousand meters above sea level um and obviously the the constant um fatigue and, and focus on on the the task was was quite demanding so we're quite fatigued I think that's all it was you know I was just a bit fatigued and didn't listen properly and um, I you know, I mis- mis- misunderstood what I was meant to do, so I went to another boulder that was blocking another part of a, a section of the road, of the checkpoint, and I was just sitting there, no one was around me, and I was like, throwing rocks down the hill, just doing, just wasting time, really. And um, it was almost lunchtime, I was pretty hungry. Um, I remember, and and then my my mate Pitch comes over to me, and said, mate, what are you doing? I said, oh, you know, isn't this the right? He's like, no, you idiot, the big one down the front. Oh yeah, sweet! So we already searched all most of the checkpoint. we had gone over it with the metal detector. We'd walk past this particular area. Maybe a hundred people have gone past it. There's not that many people with us, but you know, each time Back someone's forth. gone backwards and forth, it's you know it's quite. You, you would a hundred percent think that the area is is safe, like the amount of footsteps we've put on the area. But obviously, we hadn't put a foot on every part of the hill, and pitch was like, like me, he was throwing rocks down the hill, not paying attention that I'd walked off. So I'd packed up my metal detector, had it in my left hand and my rifle in my right hand, just walking along. And next minute, I'm just on the flat of my back, looking up at the sky, going, what the hell? And um, it's sort of dark and dusty and there's sort of rocks and shit still falling down and I'm super confused. I was like, what the hell? Like, what just happened? And I get up on my elbows and I look around and I'm like, oh, and I could see that my legs were gone oh, um, and I could see the blast crater next to me, This, the blood coming out of me. And I knew, bang, like, should I have stepped on an IED? And, um, you know, it was probably, I think that there's been two different reports, but uh, from my understanding for, you know, the last sort of eight and a half years, up until a couple of months ago, the, the blast was probably about the size of a 500 mil water bottle, That the, the explosives the IED, and um, it was used a uh, carbon rod pressure plate. I couldn't find it unless you actually you know, dug it out of the ground uh, or found the battery pack, which was way off to the side. Um, the reason why I say like eight and a half months, because recently someone's told me that it was actually a, a little, um, af- it was called an AFPAC, which is an Afghani homemade landmine. So it's probably the size of like a, I don't know, a Shabani yogurt container yeah. and enough to, you know, actually... Really similar to that size, like super okay. similar. That's the metal box. <laughs> um, anyway, the yeah, and and I was as I said before about my mate Livo, who's the, the brick commander. He was in, he was skilled or qualified enough to to blow up IEDs. My specialty was first aid, so I was the combat first aider for my team, and so I was trained in this situation and I could tell that I was like in trouble. So I ripped off some tourniquets, tried to loop it over my legs and couldn't do that because I couldn't get the balance. Every time I got up on my, off my elbows, I would fall backwards. So I rolled over and, and sort of rolled a little bit and, and yelled at pitch who was just behind me, about 10 meters away, thankfully. And he was uninjured at, well, at this point that I realized that he was uninjured and I yelled at him and he came racing over and put on my first tourniquet and then the the rest of the patrol got to me as he put on the second tourniquet and did it all up and a tourniquet is like a seatbelt style material loop um, strap with a windlass bar and a windlass is a thing that you tighten up kind of like a, a screw and it, it gets tighter um, and, and it restricts the blood flow to, to the limb and, and fortunately that, that was doing the job. Um, by the time I'd Got onto the helicopter though, I had five tourniquets put on me because there was just a little bit more blood coming out of me. So you just put on another one, tighten the other one up and then put on another one to really stop that blood. So I had three on one leg and and two on another.
1: Is there pain or is it just too much shock?
2: Yeah, so a lot of – this a really common question. A lot of people think that due to the amount of trauma that this did, I had no pain. And it's likely on other events and other people, but I felt everything. It was – really like the the amount of pain that that was it's hard to explain it sort of feels like you're getting crushed and set on fire at the same time just like that pressure of because you know when when you're like i don't know bump your elbow or or your knee and it throbs the whole body was like woof woof, and it it felt hot it felt like it was just immense like so incredible that that is possible like I, I, i don't i don't understand how it's possible but yeah, it was so immense, and, and you know I was screaming and and uh, going you know through all that situation and and um yeah truly horrific, and, and the trauma that I was going through was not just my trauma; it was the guys around me. Uh, they're they're obviously coming across a scene that they didn't expect and and they didn't ever want to see, and uh, yeah, that was something that I remember the the guys around sort of their their faces like looking in shock but at the same time knowing that I was in trouble and sort of coming to and wanting to to jump in and, and help. And they then um sort of jump jump to and <clears throat> I was telling them, you know, I need you know the bandages, make sure the tourniquets are tight. I could feel myself going into shock. So I was like guys you need to get out the IV bags prime the line, get find a vein in my arm. I didn't know at the time that my hand was all, my left hand was all messed up, had wounds and shrapnel and shit all through it. Um, and then I, um, yeah, then as they were getting that ready, another combat first aider from the infantry guys who, infantry team, his name was Cordy, and he um, was over at the vehicles, which was like you know, three, 400 metres away. By the time they got he got there, he, he sort of the guys were ready to do the IV stuff and they just handed it over to him. And, and he took over that side. And the guys were like, well, What now? What now? And I was like, Fuck, some morphine would be good, eh? So, um, <laughs> talking them through all that process, you know, the, at that stage, we weren't given EpiPens, we were just given like vials and, and, and needles. So, you sort of got to draw them, you can't just drink this. <laughs> you need to like draw it up, change the needle over to a giving needle, and then giving it to me and like, where, where do you want it? I was like, just fucking stab me. So, yeah, excuse the French, it's just no, what, mate, what I no. said and, and what happened at the time. So um, it's, uh, yeah, one of those moments that, you know, as traumatic as it is to remember, I'm very grateful for the memories because I can remember what people did for me that day and how they reacted and, and the bravery and the courage it took to, to do what was needed to save my life and that they. I'm sitting here today and and thankful for the that that chance to to be here so um yeah, so they bundled me up on a on a stretcher and um all this time you know lieutenant Harris is the patrol commanders like calling the base calling the base and um getting the helicopters to me as fast as possible they're carrying me along and you know the 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 promotion for the Paralympics was on in between the Olympic games uh during the london games and we we would see that and um at, and the as the guys were carrying me on, I knew my legs were gone and I could see that they were hurting and, and going through a uh, different trauma, but trauma nonetheless. And I said to them, you know, look, guys, I'll be sweet. I'll be all right. Like, the morphine was starting to kick in, I think. But uh, I was like, guys, oh, I'll be fine. I'll, I'll just I'll just go to the Paralympics. It'll be sweet. And they're like, oh, I'm far out. Like,
1: <laughs> I, That's what you said at the time.
2: Yeah, I actually said, um, it's all right, guys, I'll be sweet. I'll just go to the Paralympics. But uh, – I won't be in the green and gold. I'll be in the black and white. And then I was like, "Bloody hell! You might do. You want to walk with <laughs> the chopper? Do you?" <laughs> so, like I said before, you know, when when some yeah. some some tough times, black humour comes out and um, people say funny things and and you know have a bit of a laugh on on the the situation because we're all in it together. And um, you know that was not a planting of the seed. I don't think it was more. Hope and, and I don't know, realisation that those guys were going through trauma and I needed to say something to, to somewhat help them mentally through that. Um, then they carried me along and, and laid me down next to the vehicles where the helicopters were coming on their way and uh, that's when the waiting began. And the waiting, I knew, was going to be the thing that would kill me, not, not the first aid, not the IED itself. It was going to be this waiting. It was the longer that chopper took, the closer I would come to death. And that was something that I was very acutely aware of. Um, So they got this thing called the golden hour. So if you can get a a traumatic injury uh, in Afghanistan or even in Australia to a high level medical care within one hour, their chances of survival is significantly increased. Like, I don't, I head. can't even put a number on it. It's it's just it's called the golden hour for for a really good reason and, and mm-hmm. that's why. So um thankfully that the choppers did get to me within within and got me to that medical facility. I I remember it being a lot longer than an hour, but apparently it was just just under an hour. But the radio call and all that sort of stuff it's probably, you know, an hour and a half all up, but um the that waiting was was really I think that was the hardest part and not the pain, not the actual fact of, of losing my legs. That, that waiting there was was really difficult. There was guys around me that were crying and, and had to be, you know, consoled and taken away and um, I think they knew. That- your, can, can
1: you remember your own conscious thoughts in that period of time? Yeah, I not? just remember like, Fuck, this is it.
2: Like this is, I'm, I'm done. And I, was, I said to the boys, I, I don't want to die here. This is not. Like I don't want to die in this shithole because it was, you know, a dusty sand pit of a a pit. Uh, You know, as beautiful as Afghanistan was that day was not a great day, and I was voicing all the negative thoughts I'd ever had about the situation. So, um, you know, I think you know I was justified in that that fact. But I remember pulling pitch in. I was like, mate, like I'm probably not going to make it, but if you can, can you go onto my laptop and print off? These letters I'd written death letters, you know, letters to my family, to my girlfriend, to my my brother and sister and friends. So, um, and that was you know I'm okay with it now. Like I can remember it and, and talk about it all good, but that was by far the hardest thing. Like emotionally, mentally, I've said my physical difficulty in the past, but it just heart wrenchingly difficult uh, to do um, and say. But
1: uh, yeah, uh, thankfully. And- I, I asked you earlier on about fear. Mm. So oh, there's no way to ask these questions in a you know subtle manner. So <clears> just <throat> to ask them, mate, um, is there? Did you experience fear that you're going to die? Does fear come into it then?
2: Yeah, it was only, only like I said, lying on that stretcher, waiting was going to be the one that I. That was the moment where I had fear. That, that's why I said, you know, perch, you're going to have to go on my laptop. That was the you know that was the moment where I was scared, and it was because before that, every every moment, every um, action was actually improving my chances. Whereas yes. the waiting was the opposite. It was it was the only negative thing about that whole situation. Obviously, losing your legs is pretty bad, but you know, in a perfect scenario, you want to get that person into a hospital, and that's. The time between the incident and the hospital is what kills them. It's not the the, the fact of I mean, you know, within reason. You know what I mean? Like there's mm. certain situations which are unavoidable, but this one specifically was was survivable in in, in, a, in the right way. And, and thankfully, um, that was that was the case. They got got to me.
1: I, I asked you earlier on about um, the conversations when you say to your loved ones you're going to the other side of the world and putting yourself in a dangerous position. Um, Rachel, you mentioned, was your girlfriend who is now your beautiful wife. How, how do your loved ones get delivered the news?
2: Yeah, so there's a bit, bit of a process there. The army is obviously aware of it all. There's a bit of action planned. Unfortunately, people have gone through this before and um, there's a system that provides support yeah. and communication to them. Um, initially, they were told that I was unconscious, which is what actually was happening when I arrived in the hospital. So that that's probably why that was the information, because they didn't realize that I was aware through the awake and, and conscious through the whole incident itself. But when the evacuation got to me, I had passed out. So they got a knock on the My parents got a knock on the door, um, oh. were informed. My mum rang Rachel, who was at medical school in New Zealand, um, and told her, the next morning because uh, it happened late at night in Australia uh, or not like 9.30 at night, which would have been 11.30 in New Zealand. So, um, yeah, a bit of a flow-on effect and, and obviously pulling all people in, a couple of my friends from the army um, that were told the next morning that I'd been hurt. Um, yeah, so it was obviously one of those things that communication and, and the process there was was looking after the the welfare, the mental welfare of everyone, so, yeah.
1: It'd be. It it seems wrong, to to ask anyone question, but I guess it's such a a long recovery process. How long was the recovery process for you, Curtis? Yeah, it
2: it all was. Looking back on it, it, was only three months. Of in uh what they call it only three months well well like I'm saying three months from the injury till, till I got to walk again um so the the acute and um intense rehabilitation like so the healing part of it was all done within three months. So I was healing incredibly fast I was incredibly focused to to get back up and walk and, and where know. were you? I was in Brisbane. Um, so I went through a d- number of different hospitals okay. um, in Afghanistan, and then then spent a couple of days in Germany, um, stabilizing and then getting re- ready made to fly uh, fly home. So I flew home, Royal Brisbane Hospital for six weeks, and then I think it was like another six weeks or something like that, and Greenslopes Private Hospital. I was looked after it really well every step of the way. Sort of knew my plan, knew the knew the the phases of my rehabilitation and where they. Wanted me to improve and and whatnot, so I was incre- like I said I was incredibly focused and, and keen to get up and strong again. Um, my my body had gone into like this marathon mode where I was I was healing at a marathon rate. So the trauma doctor said or the trauma professor said that every day you're doing the equivalent of a marathon, and I was withering away. I was ninety odd kilos when I I think I was ninety three kilos when I got injured. And by time I, at my lightest, I was about 62 kilos. So my body was just sort of consuming itself because it was. So
1: to, to work hard to
2: repair itself yep, that hard. Yeah, yep. I was always hot. I was always, uh, had a really hot temperature. So I had ice packs under my arms and hot towels, wet towels and, and fans blowing on me. It was because my body was like, go, go like heal, 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 heal. And it was doing it at an incredible rate. And I was incredibly fit when I got hurt. So yes. that helped.
1: So if that's if that's your body, um, what about the mental healing, mate? Like, yeah, um, um, like how does how does one become mentally accustomed to the fact that they've had their legs taken yeah. away from them?
2: Well, I think um, I'm quite a, a realistic person. So yeah, um, I, I, I see the, 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 the matter-of-fact things of, of things <laughs> and somewhat can be a little bit abrupt um, in my description or, or response to people sometimes. And my wife would attest to that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but at the same time, I was, um, you know, finding it difficult, but I'd set myself goals and that was the thing that was driving me to keep going. And Yeah. Rome wasn't built in a day they say so I was you know working every day to try and improve myself get stronger heal do the right wound care I had a bit of trouble with my um uh skin graft donate donate site so which is on the top of my thigh um and that was unaffected by the 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 blast but they'd taken skin off there to, to cover up my wounds and that wasn't healing because the the doctors or the nurses would come in and like take it off each day and it would take all the new skin off. So I kept complaining about it until the plastic surgeon, the head plastic surgeon came in and said, Look, we're going to try this and just put on this band, like this band. It's called Fixamol. Some people might know what it is, but it's an amazing sort of bandage. It's very basic, sort of fluffy on one side and really sticky on the other. Usually you get it um, on, on, um, good bandages that you put over top of a wound um, on top of like the bandage and it holds it all down Um, and that stuff stayed on there and you just left it there until it fell off so you obviously keep it clean and and you could wet it and stuff like that and then just cut off the edges as it would heal and that's what what that allowed me to to actually progress my my healing because that that sort of stalled me for a bit because it was not healing very well Um, and then it sort of sped up and I mean, I was eating heaps. Um, yeah, I was, I was doing like probably eight to nine hours of physio a day, which um, is nothing else to do in hospital. So I was like, I might as well find some equipment and, and do, my, do my worst, which was, well, do my best probably. But yeah, um, yeah i get an hour a day with the physio and oh, maybe like 40 minutes. And then, um, yeah, from then it was just go. And yeah, it was almost three months to the day that uh, I got hurt, that I, I was out of hospital and, and actually came down to Sydney and um, got fitted for prosthetics to be to be up walking, which was an amazing moment.
1: Um, you've bloody floored me, so I don't really know where to proceed from here, yeah. to be honest with you, mate. Um, so uh, your legs themselves, what are they? So they're made by a company
2: called Ottobock. Well, the components are made by a company called Autobock. Um, the the knee is is currently an X3 prosthetic microprocessor knee. Um, It's got 16 sensors and four microprocessors, I think. Um, (laughs) It takes all that information from my balance and my pressures and where I'm moving and how I'm moving, puts that through the microprocessors and then transfers that to valve movement and the valves then restrict and allow a hydraulic fluid to move through a system to an hour in order to to make the leg bend in the way it should, so there's different phases of it, of a step so, or the gait, and um, yeah. it knows when I'm on sort of the power phase or the heel strike phase or in the middle. So it knows all that. It knows oh. when I need it to kick out to go up a stair. It knows that I'm going downhill or uphill. It's um, a very smart knee, but um, it's it's also you know nowhere near as good as the old Mark One. But uh, the, the 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 Mark One, yeah, the
1: uh, <laughs> the original, yeah.
2: Yeah, um, yeah, but the technology is is amazing. So it's you know salt water proof for an hour. It's got Bluetooth. I can connect to it on my phone to change modes. Um, yeah, all, all that sort of stuff. But the most important part of, of a prosthetic leg is not actually the components, it's the socket because the socket is the thing that's customised to that person and the fit. So if you can't get that right, you can't wear
1: your leg. We have featured one other serviceman on this podcast before and it's the episode that has had more impact on me than any other across the five years of the show. It features the greatest Australian I've ever met, sadly no longer with us, Jack Jones. Jack, the wonderful, sweet Jack. He played in multiple premierships for Essendon in the late 1940s after returning from serving in Papua New Guinea in the Second World War. People say, "No, you, you must have known." Nah. I said, "That no, was a job. Right, It was you just know? a job." The chaps would die alongside you, in front of you, behind you, and with the mortar bombs coming over, and you couldn't hide from them. They'd have the spotters up trees, you know, for the mortar bombs, and they'd probably land fifty yards behind you, and then they'd say, "We well, assume they'd say, drop it back fifty yards." And then have dropped in, in amongst us. You know, we had a lot killed in, in a lot of those raids. That's not a job then, though. Well, it, it still sure was because you, you didn't even think about it. You got to have a little bit more and you didn't know whether you're going to be still alive by the end of the day. What could you do? I know people well, I know. can't I, understand that. No, I, I have no I have no understanding. You couldn't what be frightened because you had to look after you. I had to look after you, for instance, and I had to look after that bloke there, you know. So you didn't feel fear? No, nah, no, nah, never felt fear at all. That's Jack Jones on Episode 6 of the show. Let's get back to Curtis. So tell me about when you first walked again.
2: Yeah, walking was um, obviously something... Is, is human and, and wanted to get back up. And or, oh, human, I'd, I probably should say that a bit differently, but you know, in, in the general sense, it's quite human. Yes, of course it is. Um, and to be out walking was something that I was, I was very keen to do. And being a, such an active and, and sort of sporty person, I was, I was keen to see that, that sort of phase back in my life. Um, and the, the moment when I did stand up was actually one when it was incredibly painful. <laughs>
1: Um, start with your left leg, just make it bend, and then move it forward. It comes forward by itself, okay? Done. Yeah. Second day,
2: you're standing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that is good. Um, I had a lot of nerve um, issues with the pressure, especially on my left leg, uh, below below knee. So I had still had my left knee. I was through knee amputation on my right side. So I need a prosthetic knee on my right, and then below the knee and the below the knee, um, the bone is sort of, it's, I've only got my tibia left and it's sort of, um, halfway, well, it's about 15 centimetres, 15, 20 centimetres of bone there. And, and because that's not naturally where you would bear your weight for walking, um, you would get a bit of a problem there. So, um, pressure through nerves, um, pressure points on, on, on that socket areas of the bones, um, where the fibia used to go into, Um, yeah, there was a a number of different stages where I was like, shit, is this what I'm in for for the rest of my life? Um, And it was pretty hard to to sort of find the motivation. But luckily, uh, you know, my family were there with me, my my mum and dad and and Rachel, my um, girlfriend at the time, now a wife. And she was like, you know, you can do this. I I know you can do this. And and we just got to day by day, you know, it's not going to be easy. It's not going to be quick. You just need to to try and sort of find the motivation each day to, to get it, and you know that that were word, those words of advice were really uh, important, and their support was was really good to me, and I'm very grateful for having them there in that moment because I was, I was thinking I'd go down there, get fitted for legs, stand up, walk out. But that's what I thought would happen, and it's obviously not the case. It is walk, learning to walk again, and, and you know the the balances the. The different sort of pressures and, and and movements were all a part of that that process. But um, so I went away from the 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 prosthetics, uh, sorry, the um and, and went back up to Brisbane. Kept doing my rehabilitation, but kept having really bad pain. The nerve pain was I could only walk like 100 meters, and then that was it. I could only do certain exercises in them without pain. Swimming was really good for me. Um, I, I did a lot of swimming in my rehabilitation because I didn't have to wear my prosthetics. And it was the first activity that I could do that I felt like I was me, um, that, that I was still capable. Um, and that sort of gave me that sort of feeling of, of uh, ability in a way. Um, so, so, yeah, and you know, I, I love to swim and I love to be in the water um, but staring at a black line is, is not always mm. that fun. But um, <laughs> And I'm sure that the swimmers out there will be up in arms about that comment. But
1: No, they agree. The, yeah. Most of them agree with it, yeah, to be honest yeah. with you.
2: They need to put, like, stuff on that line, eh, so yeah, they can I have agree. something to read or... <laughs> <Yeah>. So, <laughs> anyway, mate,
1: yeah. we're, we're, like we're an hour and a half in here and yeah. we, we haven't even got to the sport where you've won yeah. three Paralympic um, gold medals. When do you, um, you know, when do you... When do you jump in a a, a kayak or a, a canoe or, or, or and start thinking right? Yeah. I'll have a crack at this. I
2: did. Um, so I got involved with these charities. Uh, some mates for mates this was based up in Brisbane. We did this big kayak from Sydney to Brisbane, which was you know, from Sydney to Brisbane. Yeah, it's a long way. Just take the flight; it's much easier. <laughs>
1: Bloody yeah, um, it's a long yeah. way.
2: It's about nine hundred k and I did it with my father and, and a heap of other army boys, and it was it was an amazing feeling to do. It was very mentally demanding because it was just monotonous and slow we're doing like four or five k's an hour so not that's like walking speed so she's she's a oh, big old slog we went mainly from north to south just due to the prevailing winds at the time but anyway that was sort of a reaffirm to me that I was pretty keen on, on kayaking as a sport mm. and at the time I was still in the defense force and they were pretty keen to keep me in as a an elite athlete so I was able to Moved down to the Gold Coast, um, uh, become like an elite athlete and train under her full time, you know, six days a week, twice a day, that sort of thing. Um, you know, doing all the the athlete stuff, and um, yeah, and that's that's what I did. And it sort of went down that path. Went off to World Championships, um, won in in Moscow in my like eight months after picking up the paddle. Thought, shit, this sport's pretty good. I might be able to win a gold medal here. And um, got back to um, the Gold Coast and, and was. I might
1: be able to win a gold medal here. I like yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. Like it. Was like, I was quite
2: optimistic, and, and <laughs> <laughs> at the time, I, I would. You probably look in hindsight. I think it was quite arrogant of me um, to, to think that. But you know, previous experience. You know, you, you got to base your expectations off that. And I just come into the sport and, and set a world fastest time, and I was like, far out. This is this is awesome. Um, I then um, got a phone call in like mid-February from Andrea, like late one night, like 9.30 at night um, on a Sunday. And I was like, "Fire! this is a bit weird. Why is she calling me now? We should be in bed because we to really get up at 5 or 4.30 or whatever time it was. And she goes, oh, are, you, are you all right? And I was like, yeah, what's going on? And uh, she goes, uh, I've got some bad news. And I was like, oh, all right, here we go. She goes, the ICF, which is the International Canoe Federation, has been told by the International Paralympic Committee that they can't have the VAR canoe, the Outrigger canoe in the Paralympics. They have to, You have to paddle the kayak for your disability. And I was just like, right, okay, uh, I'll see you in the morning. And so I hung up and was like, oh, I'm not really sure what this means, but um, I know that I haven't done any training. And in two weeks, I've got a selection regatta for the national team uh, down in Sydney, and so I got to training, jumped in my V1 and, and paddled it, and sort of Andrea was explaining to me before I got on the water what what it sort of meant and what I had to do, and um, I was pissed off. I was really annoyed. Um, it was yeah, uh, yeah. I was I was so sort of annoyed at the timing, not at the decision, at the timing, because two, in, in two weeks, because the Southern Hemisphere teams they select their teams sort of in the summer. Mm-hmm. Which is obviously opposite to what the Europeans do. Um, so they have a bit more time to, to get their their, their teams and, and athletes and ready. So uh, I, you know, one, I got off the water and I remember pulling up to the shore. It was just a sort of sandy beach there, and just standing next to my boat, just looking at. It, I just wanted to smash it with my paddle, <laughs> and I sort of pushed it, <laughs> and then I just walked away from it and went up to the the shed and got changed and, and had a shower and, and went went home and Andrea called me up like maybe an hour or two later and she um, she goes, all right, want you down here in like 45 minutes, we're going to start in this kayak and I was like, right up, oh, let's go. are
1: so, you got two weeks?
2: Yeah, so we're doing, Jeez. so we did three sessions that day, I reckon I swam for most of it. What, tipping out? Yeah, the, the kayaks are incredibly tippy, um, even a power canoe. <laughs> They're, they're I reckon
1: still... I swam for most of it. You know, you're not <laughs> filling me with a great deal of hope at this point. Yeah, Curtis. no,
2: it was it was demoralising <laughs> and humi- uh, demoralising and humbling. I mm. think is probably the best word. You know, with my previous expectations of the V1 success, I um, was humbled by it and understood that I was going to have a, a hell of a battle here. And you know, did three sessions that day, did four every day until the competition really came down and it was managed to stay upright in my boat and then get a, a time good enough to be get the first provisional um, selection spot done. Gotcha. I joined the Olympic women's uh, crew in Italy where we train um, every year anyway, but um, in the lead up to the, the Rio games, I, I trained with them and learned a lot from their sort of experience, their sort of commitment and, and devotion to the, the craft and, 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 um, And then they went off, had their campaign, they went all right, and then uh, the Paralympics were were the next show on the the road. So we we went over into Rio and um, I was so ready. Like I was strong, I was um, fit. I was probably the fittest I'd ever been in my life. I was quite lean um, for, I I think I'm like five or six kilos heavier uh, when I went into Tokyo than I was into Rio. Um, but that just meant that i was you know really really on form and, and really um pushing uh, myself uh, in every session so I, I made the most of it i was i was felt very comfortable as well. i didn't have any niggles didn't have any body issues my 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 body felt strong and healthy and i was, I was really ready so when i got to rio i was um yeah ready for the main game and and uh, lined up and had a really good heat it was it was okay. I wasn't actually listening to the start caller all that much. It wasn't until he was saying "ready, set," and I was like, "Oh shit, yeah, right, that's right. I got a race here because we're under like the Christ Redeemer statue." Copacabana Beach is just over there. All my, drunk mates, all my dra- drunk mates are in the stands. It's like 9.30 in the morning on a bloody Tuesday or something. Uh, it was, yeah, it was, it, was fun. it was fun. And um, they were having a great time. And um, you know I managed to get through the final.
0: It's for Boda in four. Curtis McGrath in five, off to a strong start. Baton, the Brit alongside him in lane number six. I had a
2: pretty good start. My reaction time was good. And, um, I knew my, my finish was was my strength, and that's where I was going to come through and win. And I, uh, yeah, did that. I came through and, and finished about a second, 1.2 seconds ahead of, ahead of the next person, which was Marcus. And then another uh, Afghan veteran, uh, a bilateral amputee, combat engineer as well from the UK, he came third.
0: And looks to be in the lead at the moment, the 28-year-old Austrian, the six-time world champ at once. McGrath gets the boat running. He's tough to stop, and now he starts to take over. Pulls alongside Svoboda and pulls away Curtis McGrath. What a performance this is. Half a boat length clear and now pulling away from his nearest rival to take gold by more than a boat length in the end. Curtis McGrath, you star, world champion and now a Paralympic gold medal.
1: So when you cross the line, and you're a Paralympic gold medalist for the first time and you've gone into great detail about what has led you to that particular point. Like, How does it feel when you've gone from that dust of mm-hmm. Afghanistan where you thought you were going to die and then having to learn to walk again and then being told that, no, the outrigger is not at the Paralympics, you've got to swap craft and you've overcome I think, more than anyone I've ever had on this podcast. What's it like when you cross the line, mate?
2: So I was expecting joy and celebration and excitement and and everything that you see that people celebrate when they cross the line, Yahoo and and whatnot. But when I crossed it, it was this incredible wave of relief just like washed over me and it was... Thank fuck that just happened because hmm. I wanted it. I worked for it and there's so many other people did as well. And I was very much aware of that, but I hadn't put it in the front of my mind. It was in the back. And when when I crossed over, that's when it came to me and I was like, far out, like this, I've just achieved that. And this is an absolute, utter relief. And that's what I felt for the next like 15, 20 minutes. It was just this, this heavy lead blanket of relief over me. And you know, the footage of me crossing the line, I, I don't, I, do, I, I think I do like a, mm. uh, my arms out sideways, but then I like sort of curl over and I don't cry or anything like that. I'm just like, whew, like it, it is, it is done. And um, I, I was just so pleased that I was able to do it. and And, you know, everyone that had put, something into me or helped me in some way, you know, right from the guys who put on the, the tourniquets to the, the nurses, to the medical evacuation chopper, the, the doctors, you know, everyone, uh, the physios, the, the coaches, the dietitians, my wife, m- my family, every, my mates, just everyone involved in that. And I, I felt that burden then rel- like release off me and, and it was a, an incredible feeling. Um, and it's probably the, one of the strongest emotional feelings that I've ever had um, achieving that
1: gold medal. It's a bloody great description, and I like the description of relief, which a lot of athletes I think talk about. So four years later, gee mate, I've, I've taken up so much of your time. That's four right. years later, you've won your second and your third gold medal. I'm sure there was ups and downs along that journey, but you got to get in your outrigger canoe eventually because that That's obviously right. that 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 came in different the second and third time around? Very much. You know,
2: obviously the, the, the whole COVID situation was something that everyone sure. dealt with in their own way and, you know, the sport was was something that we had to deal with another challenge and, and firstly not knowing what to do when it first hit and the postponement, like how do we deal with the training program? How do we cycle out of this and cycle back on to the high intensity of it all? How do we, you know, break with not without having too much of
0: a rest? Mm. So the time has come for Curtis McGrath to defend the gold medal he won in
2: Rio. I was, wasn't too nervous. I was, I was actually really confident. Um, I had confidence in my ability and especially my starts. I, you know, Like I said before, I'd been working on them so hard and so long that I was quite happy with how I was going to do this race and, and just try to up the ante just a little bit more from my semi, semi-final and, and really uh, push hard. So, And that's what I did. I executed in my mind... Everything I wanted to do. The only thing I probably would have changed has been maybe a little bit more lactate ready, because the lactate got me right at the end. But you know, it didn't matter because I, I won by like 1.2 seconds again. So I was just just you know happy and it with a, a, a Paralympic oh, best time.
0: McGrath leads right now as they approach the midway point in this race. Curtis McGrath looking smooth, maintaining that top speed, starting to pull out. He's out to a half boat length. McGrath looking solid, looking comfortable, looking composed. It's a tight behind for Silva, but right now it is the super sapper. He defends his crown. Goal for Australia as the great Curtis McGrath goes back to back in the KL2.
2: I was um, so pumped. And then, you know, I I felt different because from the Rio one, because of the, the, the weight there was not, relief of of actually achieving what I set out to do at the same time it was but I was so confident in that moment that I knew that I could win and I knew that the work that I'd put in was going to um, reflect on on my performance and that's what happened so yeah um so you got three
1: gold medals yeah the,
2: the the v1 the next day was I was heaps more nervous that day because I knew um Again, the, the, the boys that I was up against were going fast and that the... Well, your
1: man Woody in the V1, yep. uh, he flew out of the gate. Yeah. So I was watching you thinking, oh, holy moly, this this is trouble.
0: Uh, and they're away. Good start at the bottom of your screen from the Irishman O'Leary. McGrath sits about third. Woods out to a flying start. Curtis is going to have some work to do here. He He's is so
2: fast that first 50 metres that it's hard to, like, differentiate my race plan. To can, well, Why can't yes. I do that? I was like, well, because I'm not that type of paddler. And you can see uh, if you watch back on the, the replay from that, that change, I just take off and just, woof, and just blow past everyone.
0: McGrath now starting to work. He's starting to work hard. Maintains that top speed through the middle. Switches to the right. Now back to the left. He's nose-to-nose with Wood. The Brazilians as well.
2: And I could feel it as I was doing it, as I sort of was going down the lane. I was like, I've nailed this race. I don't think I could do this. The the sequence of changes, the the increase of, of tempo and the manipulation of, of the boat going straight down the middle of the lane all the way to the finish line was, was like bang on. And there's, there's no such thing as a perfect race because otherwise sport would be boring. We'd all stop on our first race. Um, we're always looking for improvements and... Um, but that was very, very close, to, in my mind, to the conditions that were, were there.
0: McGrath maintaining his top speed, starting to power away. He's a quarter length in front. He's a half a length clear. Curtis McGrath, you are a machine. He's powering away, just needs to finish now. Curtis McGrath heads for a golden hat-trick. The mighty McGrath, he makes it three from three at the Paralympics.
2: And then, yeah, I did have a big yahoo at the end of that one. Because uh, that was pretty, pretty
1: cool. Uh, it's it's brilliant. It's making me smile. It really <laughs> is making me smile. I, I don't know if I've got, I don't know how the timings of this played out, but obviously, the world, when we're speaking now, has been rocked by what happened, and we've all seen the, the pictures of the American troops leaving for the final time, and and um, what's been happening at the airport, and Afghani's getting loaded onto planes trying to escape the Taliban. While outside
0: the last remaining U.S. base at Kabul airport, chaos continues. This is what crowds have to face to get inside. (laughs) Shooting, violence, Taliban whips. American troops worry if they open the gates, people will flood in. Was that all kicking off as you
1: were leading up to Tokyo and how are you processing the fact um at the time and and as a as a man that served there since mate
2: yeah i um it was it was happening sort of just before the uh opening ceremony of the paralympics and, and literally quite literally the the anniversary ninth anniversary of my my incident in afghanistan mm-hmm. so obviously quite connected to what's happened uh there and, and and the influences of of the taliban in the in the country and and what they're trying to implement and but firstly, you know, those those images that we saw in Afghanistan were um, pretty horrific at times, know, especially at the airport with the the plane and the people falling off it and, and rushing the airport and it looked it look dire for, you know, so many people, thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people and, and you know, everything that we had done in that country and, and tried to help and, and implement and provide safety and freedom there was all being unravelled. Um, it's not something that I was surprised by. I was surprised by the
0: speed in which it happened. The chaos at Kabul's airport, a sign of the distress over what's ahead. With Afghanistan's land borders under Taliban control, thousands crowded onto the tarmac. No visible security or any semblance of order. There was, you know... I think there's a few sayings, and
2: I'm going to butcher them. I know I am. So you can't fight an idea, and the idea of the Taliban has is, is been there for a very long time. Um, they've, you know, Afghans been at war for millennia in a way. Yeah, um, they have. They've never been really defeated ever, and and only in doing so you you have to marry into the tribes or the kings or the warlords of of. The area, so and that's what you know. Alexander the Great, I think the Mongols sort of went in, r- raped and pillaged, and moved on. And the Soviets tried, the British tried, um, and to to no success. And and I think it's it's always a, a cursed place for any occupying force. And and we weren't there to occupy. We were there to provide safety and freedom for the people. And in my mind, um, we did that for twenty years as as best we could. And I've probably had a, a unique advantage in my process of this um, change because I have to come to terms every day with my cost and my sacrifice to that nation and that campaign much more frequently than other people uh, that served there because, you know, yes. they went there, came home, and then they can remove themselves from it because it no longer is as present. You know, I'm not saying that their experiences are uh, not worthy or the same of, but um, just in a general sense, you know, I'm, I use a wheelchair every day now. I wear, wear prosthetics every day. So there's certain things that even me going to the toilet, you know, I have an affiliation to that place because I need a wheelchair to go. So it is it it is something that I've had to deal with and come to terms with. And I'm content with my contribution to Afghanistan. I went there and I made, I th- I believe I made a positive difference to the nation and, and gave free passage to not only the patrol behind me but to the school bus or, or the doctor heading out to wherever they need to go and, um, and hopefully providing them a, a free and opportunistic nation. And I believe that we gave, you know, 20 years of, of freedom and opportunity to the people of Afghanistan that have um, suffered, that may now suffer, uh, and hopefully that has planted the seed in them to demand from their new government and demand from you know, the the tyrannical nature of the the Taliban. And yeah. like I said before, like how do you fight an idea? So uh, it's
1: it's one of those things. It's a um, it's a really well thought out answer, mate. It's a really well thought out answer. How have you? Uh, it's not how have you not felt sorry for yourself, which just you just don't seem to at all from the mm. discussion we've had. Have you have you ever had moments where you think back to that phone call you received in the Rabina, I think you yeah, said yeah. it was shopping centre, and thought, shit, I wish I hadn't answered it and I just got my backpack and went off to Europe with my mate?
2: Um, nah, not at all. I think, you know, the the I get asked, you know, would you go back and change it? And you know, I I think the answer is always no, because uh, in hindsight now I think of all the opportunity that I have all the experiences that I've had and all the people I've met along the way have, have all made my life very rich and, and memorable and, and I think very happy for me so I'm, I'm it's probably the wrong word but I'm grateful for that moment and I'm grateful for the memories in which I we have created the people that came along the journey with me and Going back to the beginning of this podcast, we're talking about my book, and you know, it was really nice to be able to reflect on those moments and what people did, and and how I remember it, and and how they remember it as well, and, and you know, reconnecting with people, and coming through you know, all that that difficulty and, and adversity has is, is made me the person I am today, and probably the reason why I can you know, sit here and chat freely about it all, and mm. and have sort of a, a, a methodical discussion and and thoughts about, you know, why it was necessary and and who I am and and where I'm going.
1: Mateship is, I mentioned to you right near the start about Jack Jones and about the way he described it, the love and care of his mates that he served with. Is it a different level of mateship than I would experience with my mates where I haven't been in those situations?
2: I think it's all relative. Uh, it It all depends on, on what your experience with resilience or adversity um, or adversity first and then resilience because you don't need resilience until you until you have adversity. Mm. And if we're all going through a similar, um, uh, it, well adversity is subjective, isn't it? Your, your re- adversity is different to mine. Like could be someone walking across the road and drop their phone down the gutter and it's gone. That's a yep. bad day for them. But at the same time, there's really bad days and, and I think you know everyone's is different and, and I'm been through a situation which creates a huge amount of adversity and, and, and ongoing adversity that requires more resilience and, and my mates have gone along with me on that journey. But like I said, it's it's all relative to to your own experiences and what, what is a bad day. But you know, I think loss is is similar to what i felt and have felt um you know loss of a loved one um, loss of a pet um, you know all that sort of stuff is it's probably a similar feeling you know there's always the question about why why now or why me or how could i make it a better made it better or or who can i talk to to to, to rectify it or, or to mm. change it or, and there's always you know hindsight it's a it's a bastard of a thing but at the same time we, we all want to look at the world as as an opportunity to to better ourselves and i think um through adversity we grow and um you know it's not i don't think adversity needs to be compared and as such uh, unless someone's trying to compare it to your own situation which is is probably the wrong thing to do so there's that saying you can walk a mile in my shoes and then you can understand where i've come from so Mm. um, yeah it's 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 like i said subjective and relative to your own experience
1: Final question I have for you, we are very lucky that a lot of kids listen to this show, mm. Curtis, um, and a lot of them will listen to this with their parents and they will gain a greater understanding of the world and Australia's role in the world. For those that want to achieve some success that you have in your sporting field, obviously, you know, you've got your three Paralympic gold medals to 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 show people what you have done. For those, the youngsters that want to achieve something in their Feel that they love what advice would you give them from your experience in life which have been rich and varied and horrible and wonderful all rolled into one i guess
2: yeah i think um i think take every opportunity you can because you never know where it may lead and uh in those opportunities definitely try and do your best with what you've got i think um there's, there's a number of different ways in which you can do things and and when you approach something your best is always going to be uh, good enough for, for yourself, both for yourself and for everyone else looking on. Because regardless if you come fourth, last, gold, uh, middle uh, or, or even fail in your ambition to get a job promotion or, or get it, mm. whatever it may be, um, I think if you go in there and give it your all, it's it's you can walk away from that moment and say, I did everything I could to, to try and make it happen and, and yeah.
1: The book is called Blood, Sweat, and Steel, Curtis. I must once again apologise for some of the ignorant <laughs> questions I've asked you because I just don't have the experience in the world you do, mate. You've blown me away with this podcast. I really appreciate you coming on the Howie Games. Good luck with everything moving forward. Good luck with the with the book. Um, and once again, mate, it sounds so hollow after what you've described to say thanks for your service to your country. But thanks, mate. It's, um, yeah, it's it's been a. A, a chat that um, has blown me away I really appreciate it mate
2: uh, my pleasure howie it's uh, it's nice to be able to share my story and, and especially in long form like this it's uh, it's really cool so uh, I hope uh, you can learn a bit more and uh, from my book and, and
1: uh, look forward to seeing you around the traps Good on you mate stay safe thank you very much and get out of quarantine sooner <laughs> rather than later yeah we'll do. How Curtis can tell the story of his near-death experience with the calmness and clarity that he did in this episode is something I find really hard to fathom. When he explained it to me at the time, I remember thinking, he's so calm about it. It's almost like he's relating a story about someone else. An incredible person is Curtis. Again, the book is Blood, Sweat and Steel. It is well and truly worth your time. Until next week, with Kate Campbell, peace and love. And we can do it if we try, try, try.